My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have a degree in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagrids, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze the fall of US foreign policy through the lens of the Western bubble, because while many Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. For the ones interested uh, in knowing how we define this concept, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Every episode of this podcast follows the same structure. In order to analyze each topic, we answer the following five questions. What are the facts? We will provide a factual basis for our analysis. What is the bubble? Where we analyze the overarching problem of Western delusion. What is the personal bias? Where we see how leaders, especially Western leaders, are affected by non-rational factors. What is the damage? Where we look into how and why the Western bubble is harmful. And finally, what is the future? Where we lay out how each topic might develop down the line. If you would like to know more about how this podcast overall started or who we are, also make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Today we will have a slightly modified version of the structure as this is the second part to our overall episode, The Rise and the Fall of US Foreign Policy. Last week uh, we already answered the questions, what are the facts and what is the bubble? And today we will focus on what is the personal bias and what is the damage and what is the future? This being said, uh, let's get to it. Quickly summarizing uh, the facts that we discussed last week. Again, if you have not listened to the episode, uh, you should. Uh, we discussed um, the, I mean, first we discussed why we were talking about the United States. We looked into the origins um, of, of the US and kind of being born out of uh, this identity, well, being born out of learning from European mistakes. Um, then we looked into why the 19th century was one that was under the radar, uh, full of success economically, but also full of horrors such as slavery and uh, the killing of Native Americans. Um, then we looked into the strength of the US Constitution and that implementation until then World War I, where for the longest time the US uh, really tried to stay out until um, being dragged into it. Uh, Woodrow Wilson then proposing the League of Nations, uh, very much still kind of based on the original idea of the US of, um, again, tr trying to be, uh, to propose a model for, for, for living, but not imposing it on anyone else. Um, that then failed as well. Um, then we looked into World War II and how then here the United States got dragged into the role of a traditional superpower. And this is then where the bubble starts, which we will discuss in a second. And we have the Cold War, where the United States basically wins over the USSR um, and is starting to make a, like a lot of foreign policy changes, which, are, uh, which, we, which we discussed in great detail. And then we have the 1990s, basically the end of history. Um, and then we ended uh, the episode uh, with uh, discussing 9-11 as a sign for the United States that not all is good in the world. Um, uh, so yeah, this was a very quick recap um, of uh, what are the facts. And then we also answered the question, what is the bubble? Um, Balder, very quickly uh, recount for us, what is the bubble in US foreign policy? The, the bubble for the United States is that uh, they still ride off the waves of the origins of the United States with the idea that it is an example that is different from all others, that... Um, stands for a utopian future that the whole human of humanity can follow, liberalism, democracy, US style, and that as a result, their representatives for the whole of humanity um, of something that really no longer exists within the United States itself. So they, the bubble is that they believe 
uh, that they represent something, but they're not that very thing themselves anymore inside of their country. Um, they're behaving in a much more traditional strategic sense at a foreign policy level. And internally, there are very serious problems that go unaddressed and that make the United States um, much less than utopian, to put it mildly. And so in past episodes, we have discussed how the bubble is then shaping uh, the individuals living within that bubble, um, which leads us to the third question. What is the personal bias? And I think uh, at first we, we want to, we should focus here on an entire generation or by now multiple generations that have been brought up in this bubble that started very much um, with, well, with World War II and with the end of World War II. Um, Boulder, how can we describe this generation? I mean, how does the bubble that you just described influence their thinking when they are being brought up in this? Well, so it's, in the previous episode, we mentioned that for Americans, the, the term greatest generation refers to the generation that won the Second World War and right after, right? That build up the, the country to its superpower status. And I think what's, what you see often with humanity is that uh, the, the, once you feel that you're at the height of your success, when you become very successful, the actual hard work has been done before that. And you're no longer actually putting in the hard work at that very moment, right? So whereas the success of the United States, the real productive energy that existed very much comes from the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, in the second half of the 20th century, Americans feel the result of that. They feel the impact of that success and they mistake that moment for their brightest, most productive moment. Whereas in reality, they're just riding off the waves of previous success. And that's where that generational bubble comes in, where Americans um, and people in general, I would say, mislabel the temporal success line, right? So they, they are actually looking around in the world and say, we're now the superpower. And this is exactly what happened in the 1990s as well. We've beaten the Soviet Union. So we now are the ones who have the secret to success. Whereas the real secret to success came way before that. And they've forgotten about that. And they've already become corrupted by other processes. Um, so am I allowed to call them boomers? Um. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, uh, well, the, the, we have to be careful with labels. I, uh, labels are always extremely dangerous and people are way too obsessed with them. But sure, um, it's, 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 this, it's this idea, this gener that generation that rode off those waves of history. And, and some things went very well. We mentioned this before and it's important to mention again. The second half of 20th, 20th century saw a lot of very important productive mechanisms um, that, that improved society, such as a reduction, not an elimination, but a reduction in sexism, in patriarchy, a reduction in racism. The civil rights movement made a lot of progress in U.S. society in that sense. Uh, so it's not that all was bad in the second half of 20th century, but the very foundations of what made the United States great do not come from the time periods. They come from before. And uh, in fact, you can see a lot of pernicious dynamics, dark negative dynamics um, that, that, that statistically become visible in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s that go unrecognized because the United States is still, still riding on this success wave. And then uh, you, you have a 21st century where this whole generation no longer knows what, what is the key to their success, right? 
Um, because whatever, yeah, um, exactly. Because what I wanted to aim at with this is that we we now only described uh, the, the boomer generation, um, but the generations after that they fell victim to the same type of thinking, right? I mean, this type of thinking that the United States is the greatest country on the planet, which you hear a lot from the United States, and especially from younger generations, um, that is very much ingrained in them as well, right? Yeah, and it's it's just a soundbite. The moment, it's I would almost argue that the moment you start saying that is the moment that it's no longer true, right? The moment you start telling yourself that you're the greatest is the moment that you're probably no longer the greatest. Um, it, it's it, There are some nice psychological parallels. Countries, societies often function just like individuals. So um, if you look at family fortunes, you have a person, an entrepreneur, who uh, becomes incredibly successful in her work and, and sets up... Uh, this amazing business, then her children inherit this and their children continue the success. They start managing the success of their mother or of their father and they still are productively sort of stabilizing the success. And then the third generation just is born into wealth, have no clue anymore what made them successful or rich in the first place. And they start slowly ruining it, right? By corrupt behavior, by decadent behavior and all that. that that's a common psychological pattern, but intergenerational pattern. And in many ways, you could argue the same thing about the United States as a society. So until roughly the uh, Second World War, the United States was that first generation of society very much working hard towards a better tomorrow, being very successful at it. The second generation during and after right after second world war starts stabilizing it starts looking at some things that still need to be remedied such as civil rights movement such as sexism uh, but it no longer has the same drive and energy and understanding as the ones before and now in the 21st century we're in the third generation that was just born in into this this empty um, claim about u.s success they were born still in relative wealth in, in, in relative stability, but no longer are in touch with what made their country great in the first place, right? And, 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 and they, they are slowly eroding, um, corrupting the very foundations that, that the United States should have as its pillar. And this is exactly the reason why, for now at least, we will mostly focus on that boomer generation, because that's currently the generation that is in power. Um, it, I mean, to... Maybe our surprise. I think both of us were, were discussing the other day how old uh, Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi are. That um, I mean, I was very surprised that she was already in her 80s. Um, but so you still have this generation very much uh, in power. Um, and with this also comes on the question, what type of um, intellectual movements and what type, what type of intellectual groups were born out of that time? And were then uh, thereafter uh, very influential in US foreign policy. And here I'm talking about the neoconservatives. Um, how did they come about? Right. So, uh, well, the neoconservative movement is um, quite a radical movement that, that sort of, that's uh, second half of 20th century, inspired by this academic called Leo Strauss, um, that eventually. It, it, they come actually originally from relatively liberal circles that got disenfranchised by the politi uh, politics of the, the, the American left, the Democratic Party, and then turned Republican. Uh, they are very much this generation that in the 20th century started misunderstanding 
the foundations of what makes America great, right? They uh, believe that America stood for the, as, stood there in the world as a beacon of liberty and freedom. And Strauss, Professor Strauss, told them uh, that it was their obligation to impose this model on the rest of the world, that, it, that the, the rest of the world had to accelerate their movement towards becoming like the United States. So rather than understanding that American success comes from organic growth and just being a good example for the rest of the world, it became like an active, um, uh, the idea became that US foreign policy was an active mechanism to, to make the world into the American image. And uh, that then leads to these students of Strauss, these neoconservatives going into politics under the Reagan administration, they're mostly juniors. Um, on, under the George H. Bush, Father Bush administration still as well, they, they get into the White House but are not yet in positions of real power. Um, they see the collapse of the Soviet Union. They believe, as so many people did, including Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi, that this was an affirmation that the United States was something special, that the United States had actually won history. Um, Fukuyama, Francis Fukuyama, who we mentioned previously at the time, labeled himself a neoconservative as well. Um, they see the 1990s as the moment that now the United States can start shaping the world according to their own image. And uh, during the George W. Bush administration, Bush Jr., when 9-11 happens, these neoconservatives are in positions of real influence and power, people like Paul Wolfowitz and others. And they... Um, uh, then become responsible for horribly mismanaging U.S. foreign policy, believing that this military, which we argued in the first episode, was almost a destructive part of U.S. foreign policy that should never have been there because it's not in line with the origins of what the United States stands for, that this, this huge military that is almost twice, no, actually three times the size of its nearest competitor nowadays, China, um, is... Uh, somehow a tool that can be used to promote freedom and democracy. Um, uh, you know, with laser-guided missiles, missiles, and I'm paraphrasing the great John Stewart here, but, you know, you, you basically impose freedom with laser-guided missiles, right? That idea. And, and that goes horribly wrong in the 21st century. Um, you, you just mentioned it, and this is, uh, again, a recurring theme that we've mentioned in our third episode on the hollowing out of institutions, but that um, now politicians start managing uh, things. And a, a manager, well, a big manager <clears throat> of uh, US foreign policy or US policy in general uh, was Bill Clinton. Um, and so how could you already see like this bubble and these personal biases with him? Well, so Bill Clinton was the epitome together, together with, if you like, uh, Tony Blair in, in the UK uh, with New Labour, Bill Clinton was the exact example of how the West misinterpreted the 1990s. And it's very easy to see, right? And remember, I, I was a student at the time. Uh, I was part of this bubble. Um, when you lived in the 1990s and you were president of the United States, it seemed as if you didn't have to provide any ideological vision anymore. You didn't really have to say, this is where the United States has to go because we are where we are. It's good. Now we just have to make sure that everyone becomes like us. Um, so Bill Clinton was very clearly a managerial president who just wanted to put out fires wherever he needed to put out fires. The Balkans, for example, uh, the breakup of uh, Yugoslavia, um, 
we can argue, by the way, about how he did that, but that's that's a whole different thing. Um, internally, he had to sort of argue the rise of technology. Um, he had to deal with some social changes, um, gay rights, for example, in the United States, and he made some big mistakes there. But he didn't have to put forward a vision of America, of where the United States was and was supposed to go, because uh, it had been figured out. And so he is... The first in what I would argue is then a relatively long line of world leaders who just see it as their job to make sure that interest rates are low, inflation is low. Interesting in 2022, low inflation. It's a concept that used to exist. Um, the, uh, that, that, that people, that employment would be uh, high, unemployment would be low. Um, you know, maybe here and there do something about the environment, but you don't need to have a broader vision like that. He set the tone for that. And that is what has been copied ever since then in the 21st century. So then who followed uh, Bill Clinton was uh, was in Bush Jr. Um, but before we specifically talk about how he and the neoconservatives in their personal bias reacted to 9-11, um, I want to draw the comparison between uh, between Bush Jr. and Bush Sr. Um, so how, how do we have that? Because I mean, both of them invaded Iraq, but both of them in very different ways, and both of them with very different biases driving them, right? Right, a very, very different story. So um, George H. Bush, Father Bush, um, was clearly a, a technocrat, someone who very clearly understood the strategic elements of foreign policy, who had been in many ways a product of this corrupted vision of America, if you like, where it's about strategy rather than long-term vision internally, right? Using active foreign policy, but he was a very intelligent um, analyst of international relations, had been uh, director of the CIA before, had been vice president under Ronald Reagan. Uh, he understood international relations very well in a, in a, in a traditional strategic sense. He did invade Iraq, but that was only after he pushed out Iraq out of Kuwait, right? So Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Uh, Saddam Hussein did that thinking that the United States, dictator Saddam Hussein from Iraq, uh, that the United States would support, uh, support him as they had during the war between Iraq and Iran. Um, Saddam Hussein misinterpreted a world where the United States had moved on from supporting dictators and was now looking at itself as a leader of the free world and no longer was that interested in having unpleasant characters around, like Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein did, made a huge miscalculation there. He thought he could get away with occupying Kuwait, especially because of its oil reserves. He couldn't. George H. Bush, and by the way, the whole global community, uh, reacted with outrage. Within no time, the US military and allies were activated. They pushed the Iraqi forces out of Kuwait. And then uh, after that, that was called um, Operation Desert Shield, shielding Kuwait from Iraq, they went into Operation Desert Storm, moving into Iraq. That was a continuation of the defense of Kuwait. And then the big question was, what do we do with Saddam Hussein? This is clearly an aggressive dictator. Nobody likes him. He's, he messed up the war with Iran. Um, he, he now does this. He's unreliable. George H. Bush at that time understood very well because of his intelligence background, that to get rid of Saddam Hussein without having a structure to replace him, 
a democratic process or another dictator, whatever, without a clear successor to Saddam Hussein, you would create chaos in Iraq. You would create chaos not just in Iraq, but also in the Middle East. Um, because it would leave this huge power void. Iraq is a hugely strategic and powerful country, especially in those days. And so he went. To, he stopped his forces about 60 kilometers before getting into Baghdad and said, okay, we've defeated the Iraqi forces. Saddam Hussein has nothing to fall back on. We as a global international community now have to limit his powers in the future, but we're going to keep him there to avoid this power void, to avoid this vacuum that could lead to horrible consequences. And it was absolutely the right choice. Now, they, they messed up other things afterwards completely by, for example, embargoing Iraq. They are responsible for possibly hundreds of thousands of children dying because of food uh, shortages, because of starvation. So it's not as if everything was brilliant, but the choice to keep Iraq, uh, Saddam Hussein in place in Iraq was strategically a good choice. As you will uh, remember uh, just before, I said that the neoconservatives at the time were juniors under the George H. Bush administration. They were furious about this. They, they saw Saddam Hussein as a dictator and the United States is there to liberalize the world, to democratize the world. And George H. Bush had a, had a chance to get rid of an evil dictator and create a shining new little America in, in, in Iraq, in Mesopotamia, right? By, by, by establishing a democracy, holding elections. And that would be an example for the rest of the Middle East to follow. So they were furious, but they didn't have enough power to uh, change the president's minds because they were still junior advisors. They were not in positions of great influence. That completely changed under George W. Bush. It was 10 years later. And by that time, they had moved up in the Republican Party and they were absolutely senior advisors. And you could even argue that someone like Cheney, even though technically he wasn't Dick Cheney, vice president of George W. Bush, wasn't technically a neoconservative, but he certainly had this similar outlook of using U.S. power, military power to transform the world. Uh, same with Donald Rumsfeld, Secretary of Defense, for example. And 9-11 happens. We talked about terrorism before, so we don't need to go back into that. But George W. Bush, unfortunately, but politically understandably, goes into Afghanistan. We know that Afghanistan, that it turned out to be a major disaster, 20 years of civil war, but it is if, if you go back to 2001, 2002, it is an understandable decision to make with very few people actually being against it at the time internationally because the Taliban were supporting Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda was the pariah of the world at the time, obviously. They go into Afghanistan, start a war there, completely relying on their military power, thinking somehow that they can make Afghanistan into this democratic process. Once again, you see this hybrid corruption where on the one hand, they still believe that the United States stands for something ideologically greater than just any other nation, than the strategic considerations of others, but at the same time using the very traditional tools of the military and hard power to impose their will. Um, and while that has just started, the neoconservatives, who now are seniors under the George W. Bush administration, are, see their chance to finish the job that they felt Father Bush, George H. Bush, should have finished 10 years earlier. They say, okay, hey, you know what? We invaded uh, Afghanistan. We're now militarily active. We're fighting terrorists. Let's also go into Iraq. And it's useful to point out that Iraq had absolutely zero connection to terrorism. 
Saddam Hussein was an enemy of Al-Qaeda, had absolutely no interest in, in supporting Osama bin Laden in any way, shape or form, as far as we know, had no significant network that in any way could be interpreted as a terrorist global organization. He was just a horrible dictator. That's it, at home. No threat to the United States. But uh, the neoconservatives were bent on righting the wrongs of what they understood to be wrong uh, of uh, a decade earlier. And so they went into this huge campaign painting Saddam Hussein as this menace, somehow linking him to 9-11 in vague ways, uh, claiming that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, creating images in the mind of Americans that soon there would be a nuclear device or a chemical device exploding in New York um, uh, city center. Um, they basically did everything they could to persuade the American public that Iraq had to be invaded. And they managed to do so in 2003, March 2003, which again led to another war that had absolutely no success um, at the end of it. And there was no visit, there was no there was no idea of what success would look like. Nobody in the right minds thought that you could just impose a thriving democracy in Iraq. And that's exactly the picture that they painted, making use of an American public that's still in their brain has this, this image of them somehow being leaders of a free world and being the, uh, the, 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 the desire of the rest of the global community to follow, um, that the Americans, uh, by just going in there and removing a dictator, would be greeted as liberators and that the Iraqi people would be part of this freedom wave and um, somehow be the start of this revolution in the Middle East in general. I think this is maybe the clearest example we have so far of, 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 a pers of how the personal bias can, can affect international relations. Um, I mean, we already tapped into what is the damage here when, when, when you mentioned Iraq and Afghanistan. However, uh, before we fully talk about what is the damage, I uh, briefly want to go back to two individuals who... Um, well, I mean, one of them is now U.S. president, uh, Joe Biden, and one of them who tried to become president, um, but is still very has be, still been very influential in U.S. foreign policy, Hillary Clinton. Um, how are I mean, because those are very much children of that era that we discussed earlier um, and, and of the bubble. And so how can we see the personal bias within them? So these are. Two people, and they, they're not exactly um, similar in their outlook. Um, you could argue that Hillary Clinton is much more of a technocrat, um, sort of, uh, unsurprisingly, in the same vein as Bill Clinton, right? Um, this, this idea of it's about managing liberalism and, and rather and because we stand for something good and now we have to deal with all the problems to make sure that the whole world moves into a specific direction. And then you've got Joe Biden, who's maybe a little bit less technocratic, but much more gung-ho about imposing democracy and freedom. Um, he is very much a child who became a successful politician again in the 1990s, does all important 1990s. So once he became um, significant, a significant player within the Senate, that was the moment that the United States looked at history and thought they'd figured it out. And that clearly has influenced them, right? Uh, it has clearly made him believe this myth of uh, there's something there being something inherently better about the US model than any other model. He's a strong believer in that and he's, he's strong he strongly believes in imposing that. Now we just talked about neoconservatives 
who was the main, um, at least one of the two or three main advocates of the Iraq war among the Democratic, Democrats in 2002-2003, Joe Biden. He was a huge supporter of the invasion of Iraq. Not because he's some kind of evil guy, but because he genuinely seemed to be blinded by this belief that all the United States has to do is use this military to impose democracy and freedom and everything is going to be fine. Joe Biden, very gung-ho, very much influenced by this late 20th century path. And as a result, he has been very hawkish in foreign policy. And when we say hawkish, we mean very aggressive in imposing the American will through hard power onto the rest of the world. Um, this in many ways can also be seen in the way that the moment he becomes president, straight away he looks for an enemy. Rather than saying, we need to go back to making the United States strong internally, he says, how can we define ourselves according to who we are not? And the enemy he choo chooses at the time is China, right? So that is very specifically thinking again in those traditional foreign policy terms, not in the founding father type of terms that the United States was supposed to have. I mean, I assume that China was the was the original uh, sought out enemy. Uh, I mean, it still very much is. But then, uh, with the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, then Russia came to the table for Biden, right? Yeah. So it's interesting that China is a much more obvious um, threat to the American model, right? Because Russia doesn't really have uh, a model that they want to impose on the rest of the world. Uh, if you believe, if you're Joe Biden and you believe that your country stands for a future that the rest of the world should follow, then you're going to be very much threatened by Xi Jinping, who says, we now are developing our own Chinese model. And by 2050, most of the developing world will copy how we did things. That is a direct threat, if you're Joe Biden, to your vision of the future. Uh, because in your vision, it should be the rest of the world copying the American model. Putin has absolutely no interest in the rest of the world. Russia has no interest in the rest of the world. They are interested in very traditional uh, power play of Russia just being strong right? and, and Russia being respected and Russia being influential. That is what Putin cares about. He has absolutely no time to spend on, on thinking whether Argentina one day should follow uh, the Kremlin way of doing politics. It's not on Putin's radar. It is on Xi Jinping's radar. And so it makes sense that originally when um, Biden became president, his chosen enemy was Beijing, was Xi Jinping, was China. That created a huge problem um, when, of course, uh, Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, because then all of a sudden he has to shift gears, right? Putin, who doesn't have this clear alternative model, is a much more direct threat to U.S. interests and to, if you like, global peace and security. And so uh, that creates this, this, this sort of divided personality within Biden, where on the one hand, he really wants to focus on China, but on the other hand, he now has to sort of calm down on China because he needs China to contain Putin. And that goes very much against his agenda. And it is one of the main failures of Biden's foreign policy agenda that he did not have the agility to do this correctly, right, to say... How can we deal with Russia in an effective way? Because he had so clearly set out his stakes at the very beginning. China is the one that we're going to fight. And I mean, but see, the, the way that this seems to me is that Russia is an even an easier enemy for Joe Biden um, than China. Because for Russia, it's just, oh, they're threatening us directly. Um, and to counter this, you can resort to very old school and easy ways of just countering someone else, another country's influence. But when it comes to China, he actually has to propose a model that will be more convincing than what the Chinese are currently um, proposing to the world. 
That's that's true. But keep in mind that in Biden's mind, the model uh, is already there. He doesn't feel the need to really revise the American model, right? So uh, you're right that that in reality, if the United States wants to fight this ideological war, say. China has got it wrong. We've got it right. The world should follow us. Humanity should become like the United States. Then that would require for the United States to spend an awful lot of time and effort on strengthening its own internal dynamics, right? That the dynamics of increasing income inequality, uh, crumbling infrastructure, um, uh, increasingly corrupt political systems, those kind of things. But that is not something that Joe Biden is particularly worried about. I mean, he has he has tried to invest in infrastructure, but that's again more managerial than visionary, uh, because he believes that the United States is just inherently good and has it inherently right. Um, it's just that from his psychology's perspective, China is a much bigger threat because he understands that Russia cannot invade um, the United States, cannot be a military, uh, you know, mi- military rival to the United States, they've got nuclear weapons, that is a problem. But beyond that, um, the United States doesn't have much to fear from Russia, but they do have something to fear from a world that looks at China and says, hey, hang on, actually, you're doing much better than we thought, and the United States is doing much worse than we thought. So from his perspective, China is disrespecting this American dream that exists. Um, and um, you have to, from a purely strategic perspective, but that is not only uh, Biden's mind. Russia is obviously a much easier enemy. Um, it, it's completely obvious that that Russia can also much more easily be portrayed as this dark dictatorship, right? With Putin invading countries right, left and center. I mean, if you want to start exaggerating and if you want to start painting a picture, then, then Russia would be uh, a much easier target. And that is exactly what the West has been trying to do ever since the invasion of Ukraine. But it is difficult because Russia has absolutely no interest in competing with the West when it comes to global ideology. Yeah. See, I think I think especially your last point on Joe Biden is a very good way to to then summarize and end um, kind of the part about what is the personal bias, um, and that this moves us on to what is the damage. Um, so you mentioned earlier that. By having a big military, um, you are at some point you will you will use it. If you have the military means, you will use it. Um, and this already started in, during the Cold War with a certain level of hypocrisy. So here we want to discuss then the United States basically steep, sleepwalking almost into uh, into Vietnam. Right. It's, there's this this expression, right? If you're a hammer, then every every problem looks like a nail. So you can just bang on it, and 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 it will it will solve itself because that's what you do as a hammer. The United States, after Second World War, has this huge military, and in an ideal world, they would have built that military down. But if you once it's there and you leave it there, and this is exactly what uh, President Eisenhower, who wasn't a pacifist in any 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 way, he was the chief of staff during the second world war military chief of staff of the armed forces um then he became president he warned for this for the military industrial complex once you leave it there it becomes this tool that you are going to use as a country because it it is at your disposal on paper it makes you look invincible um right now the united states spends something like 850 to 900 billion dollars a year on It's military way more than any other country, about 40% of total global expenditure on the military. It makes you look very influential, very powerful, and you think that you can impose your foreign policy goals. 
Again, I cannot repeat enough how much this goes against the very essence of what the United States was supposedly founded for, right? This is exactly what they weren't supposed to do. But you have it there. And Vietnam is a very good example of that, where no one actually ever decides to start a full-blown war in Vietnam from an American perspective. It starts with some military advisors. It starts with a, a few soldiers here and there, a battalion here and there. And slowly, during the Kennedy administration, uh, it builds up. And then Johnson all of a sudden wakes up one morning, looks around and finds himself in a full-blown war in Vietnam, fighting the Viet Cong who are supported by the Soviet Union. It is the use of military that should never have been so natural to the United States. It should have been natural to Prussia in Europe. It should have been natural to the British Empire, at least the Navy. Uh, uh, it should have been uh, natural to Napoleonic France with the biggest military at the time. It should have been natural to the Roman Empire with the biggest military at the time, but it should not have been natural for the United States to do this because it's not in their DNA. It's not who they were supposed to be. And yet, this is exactly what's happened. And this is exactly what not only led to Vietnam, uh, but also led to the ease with which Iraq was invaded in 2003. Exactly. Um, so so that's, that's done. Obviously, the second uh, big point is you have the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. And here, and then let's focus on the on the damages that has caused. So obviously, we're talking about huge damages on the humanitarian side. Apart apart from then the humanitarian suffering, what were some of the other um, consequences that this had? Because I, I I mean I don't remember, but I've read then a lot that especially Iraq, like the second invasion of Iraq, wasn't very popular among other world leaders, and there were huge demonstrations, civilian demonstrations, where people in the Western world went out on the streets protesting against the invasion and then close US allies did not partake in this. Yeah, it's um, it's putting it mildly, right? Uh, whereas the war in Afghanistan, this was a year before, the, the world was still reeling off the pain and, and shock, just a pure shock of 9-11. Um, and so the world was generally favorable towards invasion. A year later, in 2003, there was this huge movements against the invasion of Iraq. And and, and it, 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 the United States was desperately looking for allies, right? And the, the, there were some that they could always rely on. Uh, the Netherlands, my own country, is always a very, very reliable partner for the United States, not because militarily the, the Netherlands is relevant, but because diplomatically, US United States want to say that you've got a lot of partners in this endeavor. Uh, the same with Australia. I believe, and I'm not joking about this, that uh, Morocco sent 50 monkeys for mine uh, uh, finding mines in Iraq. Uh, so they didn't actually send military, but they wanted to participate as so that the United States could say, look, we've got Morocco on our side. Iceland, and I'm not joking here, sent one soldier. Enough for the United States to say we've got Iceland as a partner. But they were desperately looking for friends in the invasion of Iraq. Now, they've got, they had, of course, very fervently so, uh, Tony Blair, who seemed to be on this holy mission, sacred mission to democratize the world. Um, and so the United Kingdom was on that. But, but most other countries, including France, Germany, were very skeptical. There was this huge anti American movement about what are you doing? Why are you now going way beyond the room that we gave you? We understood that you had to go after Al-Qaeda. We understood that you had to take action, that you couldn't let 9-11 happen just like that. But now you're taking it way too far. We've given you a hand and you're taking our arm, right? You're, 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 you're pulling the world into a direction that we really don't want you to take us. So from a foreign policy perspective, that already itself is hugely damaging for a country that believes 
that it is the light on the hill that has to be followed by everyone. Vietnam was damaging, but Vietnam they could argue away as part of a Cold War issue, uh, fi fighting for freedom in Vietnam against communist oppression. I mean, it's a, it's a feeble argument, but it's an argument they could make. But there's no such argument to be made in Iraq. No one in the Sears mind thought that getting rid of Saddam Hussein was going to be good for Iraq and that somehow this was part of the movement that the United States should be leading. So they completely, uh, well, I don't want to say destroyed, but deeply damaged their reputation. And this reputation is everything. And we've talked a lot about the military. But if you really look at the American project, and this goes all the way back to the 18th century, to the start of the United States, but certainly if you look at the success of the United States in the 20th century, first with this huge industry that allowed it to militarize during the Second World War, and then in its economic and cultural power to defeat the Soviet Union, real power of the United States, real influence, if you genuinely believe in this project, comes from soft power. It comes from its culture. It comes from its economy. It comes from the psychology of having this brilliant society that everyone wants to be part of, that everyone wants to live in, uh, the American dream, uh, everyone watching Hollywood movies, listening to American music. That is what has made the United States successful at a foreign policy level. That has allowed American diplomats to influence the world everywhere. Its military has not been a key to that success. In fact, in many instances, the military has actually harmed it very, very badly. Yep, I, I think so too. Um, I mean, when it comes to just just when you saw the United States leaving Syria, um, when when Trump ordered that in 2018, 2019, um, you had these videos of people throwing rocks after them. Um, you have U.S. flags being burned all over the Middle East uh, as a sign of outrage. There's death. There's chance of death uh, to America. I mean, that, that's where you see where, where the, the military was basically deployed. And when you look at the influence of soft power, I mean, I myself, am, uh, I, I was the first one to sign up to a student exchange in, uh, in, in 2015 because, oh, this is like, of course, the land of the free, uh, American dream. I mean, this idea is, is being sold through, especially through Hollywood. Um, I was very positive um, towards the United States, especially as a, as a young teenager. But then when you... Become, when you grow older and then you suddenly learn about all, all the, all, well, especially the things that happened in the last 20 years when it comes to Iraq, uh, Iraq too, uh, when it comes to Libya, Syria, um, there's just so many things that where it makes it very easy to, to quickly criticize the United States and its foreign policy. It's, it's very interesting what you're saying about you signing up to go to the United States as a teenager. Um, so when I graduated um, in 1999-2000 um, from university in the UK I and many around me always thought that at some point we would live in the United States uh, because we we genuinely uh, we understood that the United States at some point this was the United States of Bill Clinton um, there were some issues we weren't comfortable with uh, we certainly weren't comfortable with things like the Vietnam War but it, uh, it still was a land that promised a lot And that sort of seemed more open to exploring who you were than good old Europe. You know, Europe being devastated by thousands of years of infighting, war, and, you know, hierarchical structures. Now, if I fast forward and I talk to students at, at IE University, where you were a student as well, um, 
most often you hear people actually wanting to live in Europe. People don't want to live in the United States anymore. And I'm not just talking about Europeans. I'm talking about Americans who, who prefer to live in Europe. I'm talking about Asian students that either they want to go back to Asia or they want to go and live in Europe. African students, same. Either they want to go back to Africa or they want to live in Europe. Very few people are nowadays thinking, oh, I would at some point in my life move to the United States, which is a terrible indictment for a country that first of all has grown based on its openness to the rest of the world say come to us literally on the statue of liberty come to us and we'll take care of you and you will be part of this amazing movement immigrants we need you and you need us um and secondly a, a country that says that it has the magic formula that country doesn't seem to exist in 2022 anymore see and i think that this I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm convinced because I have these conversations uh, with others as well. Would you want to, I mean, it's there. It's not as much about would you want to live in the US? Some people still say yes for maybe, I don't know, the 20s and for kickstarting their, um, their career. But then I always continue the question. I ask them, would you, would you want to raise your children in the US? And I don't think that anyone here says no because of bad US foreign policy. But because of something else that we mentioned, it's this lack of a focus on an internal dynamic uh, identity. It's the lack of focus on internal problems, where it's not not maybe not maybe not as much the uh, crumbling infrastructure, but it's also internal divide. You know, like the increased politicization of everything. Um, shootings are also not helping. Where the United States has lost, I mean, uh, and I yeah, its appeal to for people to to go there. Because it's no longer a better place. It now even seems like a worse place of where oh, maybe Europe doesn't have, uh, where the European Union doesn't have the greatest companies and it doesn't have the greatest jobs. But especially with a generation that now more than ever seeks stability over anything else. I mean, I'm talking about the generation that has already lived through 9-11, economic crisis, uh, refugee crisis, then a pandemic, and now a war in Ukraine. A generation that just seeks stability is not looking forward to to moving to the US anymore. And I think that this is, yeah, this is a, a very good indicator, maybe not representative. I mean, but these just, yeah, just this anecdotal evidence suggests that maybe the United States is losing a bit of what has made the United States the United States in the past, um, in, the, in the past 100 years. Which in many ways, if you, for those, and I would certainly include myself on in it, who have a lot of sympathy for, if you like, the French Enlightenment and um, the, the Western philosophical movements that led to a lot of the success of the 20th century uh, it's a tragedy right that the united states is not able to be this vanguard anymore for for them. because europe it's hard for europe to actually take over that role even though a lot of people would like to live in europe at the moment because of the issues that you mentioned um ideologically europe has never really been shaped based on we're gonna be this light on a hill europe in many ways is fortress europe right we're uh, comfortable europe is comfortable with being what it is and really it wants to build a big wall around it and just uh, live its life um without interference from the outside that's 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 kind of the european attitude because they are too too damaged by their own behavior throughout history, too damaged by all the pain of colonialism and wars and suffering and infighting. And so Europe now just wants to be left alone. So it's if you believe that there is something positive in this Western model that comes from philosophers, German and French philosophers of the 18th and 17th, 18th and 19th century, then um, this is a sad observation 
because it's not clear where any new light on the hill comes from. Um, so here in the last episode, I drew, a, I would call it provocative uh, parallel between the United States and China, where both, uh, I mean, the United States in the 19th century and China in the past 40, 50 years um, were very much focused on themselves and not trying to engage with anyone else. Uh, is Europe then doing the same? Is Europe, um, because, I mean, we, we identified earlier that one of the reasons for the United States strength is because it did not want to get involved anywhere else by Europe wanting to become a fortress, um, that they are doing something similar? Yeah, I, I, well, the United, Europe, sorry, Europe wanting to become a fortress is the result of it being burnt by history. It just, uh, Europe has too long a history with too much violence, with too many mistakes, with too much destruction, to actually still have a drive, or even, if you like, the arrogance to say, the rest of the world has to be like us. The only reason why Europe is sort of a promoter of democracy and liberalism worldwide is because it's sort of the little brother of the United States, right? I mean, it's it, it, it's a but but really, Europe doesn't have this this cultural historical drive because history has been too tough. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, too tough in many ways, right? Because Europe dominated the waves and they really messed it up. Um, so so because of its own mistakes, it has been a really rough ride and now they just want to be left alone. What I find very interesting here about the parallel with China, though, is that I have certain doubts, and this is me going a little bit beyond my area of expertise, so I have to be very careful here, Um but I have doubts that China can actually successfully take over that mantle of being an example for the rest of the world, exactly because it's not just the past 50 years that China has been inward-looking. China has 2,500 years of being inward-looking. They built the Great Wall of China not for nothing. They built it not just to keep the barbarians out, uh, they kept it also to say to the rest of the world, hey, you know what, we're big enough, we're fine. We're not going to interfere with you if you don't interfere with us. And there are certain moments in their history that they did try. Uh, they tried for a moment to colonize uh, Eastern Africa. Uh, that was, you know, that led to direct um, uh, withdrawal uh, afterwards. Uh, China has been very consistent, and that is consistent with its Confucian culture. It's consistent with uh, its its long path through human history to say we are not going to impose our will on the rest of the world. It's not up to us. You do what you do, you, we do us. And so that very specific Protestant project that the United States started in the 18th century um, is very difficult to replicate. And it's very unlikely, I think, that China can actually somehow get close to being this example that the rest of the world will want to follow. And... Um, the question is, will the United States be able to somehow recoup any of that glory, any of that image? But if they were to do that, they have to learn the hard lessons and they don't seem to be learning those lessons. And with this, moving on to our last question, what's the future? What is the future for the United States foreign policy? Well, so it's going back to basics, right? So the, one of the main issues that has strengthened this bubble so much for the United States is that for too long they seemed successful. And when you seem successful, you stop critically looking at yourself. You stop working towards something, you can just lay back and be comfortable. And that comfort level, without critical analysis of what actually is the matter with the United States and how they should behave towards future, has led to the current problems. So if you then look towards the future, um, 
the most likely scenario, if you like, and sometimes we use scenarios, is unfortunately that the United States will, it, that it's kind of too late for the United States to go back to its roots, right? Its roots of being a largely pacifist, not completely, but largely pacifist country that does not want to use its military, that does not want to impose its will, but instead works very hard to make its own country as successful, as free, as democratic as possible. That's those roots. And saying to the rest of the world, please come to us. We need you. We want immigrants. Uh, the very foundations of the success of the United States seem to be long gone. Um, in the sense that the, the way that the United States now deals with immigrants, immigrants, uh, as they call them, aliens, are seen as some kind of existential threat to their existence, rather than understanding that it's the very essence of what made their country great in the first place, right? Uh, but of course, in the past, they were mostly white immigrants, and now they're Latinos, and that somehow is, is a threat to the Protestant establishment. Um, it seem, they seem to be too far gone. Um, income inequality has gone too far. The, the wealthy upper class has created an oligarchy in many ways within the United States that's going to be very hard to break. Um, the government is too dysfunctional. Everyone who has lived in the United States, who has been there for a very long time, knows how ineffective and inefficient simple government procedures are in the United States because the government has been underfunded, underappreciated, and underdeveloped, basically, because there is this increasing dislike for the government. It, it's, it's worth mentioning that at the high point or low point, because, I mean, it's, this is pretty bad, but at the maximum income tax rate of the United States in the 1950s was 93%. 93% of your taxes in the United States would go to the government. Now, that seems very far away from what we have now. Now, I'm not advocating for a 93% income tax rate. All I'm saying is that um, there was a, a time that within the United States, there was a balance and an understanding that the government had a role to play in keeping society free and safe and secure and economically well-to-do. That balance has gone out of the window and now it, you, you see a society that is no longer capable of dealing with its internal issues. And if you're not, as the United States, capable of doing that, if you're not capable of strengthening your internal model, there is no way that you're ever going to be this example for the rest of the world to follow. And so the most likely future is that the United States continues this decay. If you ask me, is there another path? Well, yeah, the, the path is to do the opposite, right? To stop this foreign policy nonsense, to stop focusing on shaping the rest of the world according to your strategic interests, because that is not what the United States has been made for. It is not what the United States is particularly good at. Um, stop using foreign policy as a tool to distract from your internal problems. Focus on your domestic strengths. Focus on how to go back to a vibrant, innovative, fair society that you always wanted to create. Well, this seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on the fall of uh, US foreign policy. If you have any questions, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email to jhasenstab, reiagroup.org, and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to our listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. This is it from my side. Um, Boulder, which closing quote uh, did you bring for us today? I thought it would be appropriate to quote John Adams here, one of the founding fathers. Um, and I know that a lot of people have problems with the founding fathers because people like Jefferson were slave owners, but they were also very intelligent 
people who set up an incredible model and they knew themselves that it was likely that the model that is set up in the 18th century wouldn't last in the long term. And this quote by John Adams very much reflects that. I do not say that democracy has been more pernicious on the whole and in the long run than monarchy or aristocracy. Democracy has never been and never can be so durable as aristocracy or monarchy. But while it lasts, it's more bloody than either. Remember, democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts and murders itself. There never was a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. It is in vain to say that democracy is less vain, less proud, less selfish, less ambitious or less avaricious than aristocracy or monarchy. It is not true, in fact, and nowhere appears in history.